Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. The very process given, and you know, I speak in a Presbyterian realm, but I think this is true in, like, in the Baptist as well. The very process to be able to address abuse is harmful to women who are abused. We really need, as a church as a whole, to step back and look at our, our ecclesial bodies, our governing processes, the way that we discipline, and, and see how it actually can perpetuate abuse. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host, Eric Swarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I am so excited once again to be sitting down with Amy Bird. Uh, your, your book, I was telling you right before we hit record, uh, was was part of a one-two punch at the beginning of the year, reading through your book and then uh, Beth Allison Barr's book, uh, which which I uh, just had her on just a few episodes ago. It really, for the first time, has really made me kind of question some of the positions I've held to for a really long time when it comes to the complementarian, you know, patriarchal view of of scripture. And uh, I, I don't know if this will surprise you. It probably won't. But a lot of people aren't happy about this conversation. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so when, whenever it comes up, YouTube comments are a delight. Uh, podcast reviews start start dropping in one one at a time. And uh, so, so what made you decide to take the plunge and dive into something that? you know, you know, is going to send some uh, artillery your way? Yeah, Ooh, that's a good question, because it really wasn't my aim to go in this direction, mm. <laughs> per se, with my writing. Um, but my goal in writing from the beginning has been um, to write about discipleship. And specifically, mm. when I first started writing, I, you know, I was a young mom, and I noticed kind of a lack of um, motivation in women's studies to, you know, really study theology. The resources were pretty light, pretty fluffy, um, not much to them. And so 
I wanted to motivate women that, hey, we're theologians too. Mm-hmm. And that, that first book I wrote, you know, is to be a tool to help women think more deeply about that and how our theology affects our everyday living and how important that is. And I got a lot of, you know, positive reviews about that book. And it kind of launched me into a speaking career and uh, podcasting and all. And, you know, I had some great opportunities meeting different people, different pastors, different academics. And, you know, I spoke as a laywoman. So I just thought it was a, a great uh, conversation that I was entering into. Right. Um, however, then when I tried to put that more into practice as a woman, um, there was, that's when the, not only the pushback came, but sometimes the pushback came in, in terms of um, ignoring or undermining, you know, things like that, right. comments that were made. Um, and so my books, this book, uh, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood is actually, that's my fifth book. And, and they've all kind of built off of each other as I've been exploring like discipleship for men and women in the church. And um, I found a, a lot of invisible fences, you know, even as somebody who is more well known now in the reformedish yeah. world of writing, um, you know, when I'm, I'm out and about at conferences and things like that. Um, noticing how differently I was treated as a woman, even to the point where um, at one point I was, you know, leaving a restaurant with, with a group of people, there were two different doors and um, exits. Mm -hmm. And I ended up exiting, you know, closest to where my car was, which wasn't close. I was in a uh, unfamiliar city, you know, my car, there was no parking. So I had to park like blocks down the road. It was raining. It was night. I, I had to walk sketchy alleys to get to it, you know, and I go out and there's two men walking out with me that I know, you know, and um, neither of them offered me a ride to my car. Mm. They were parked. They got parking spaces, good parking spaces. Um, or even, you know, Hey, for chivalry reasons, go get my car for me. <laughs> yeah. None of that because and they didn't offer me the ride because of this whole um, appearances thing of, yeah. you know, giving a woman a ride. So I found that it was more important to protect their reputations than to pre- protect the actual person. Yeah. Um, you know, I find myself walking down this alley <laughs> at night in the rain, scared, thinking how my husband would be so angry, you know, if he knew that that's how things went down. Um, so you know, some of the basics that, you know, you see men being taught about leadership and chivalry and, yeah. and things like that and the complementary movement I, I saw not being put into practice because in in actuality women are threats yeah um so i ended up writing a book about friendship between the sexes because i wanted to um you know explore what does friendship even mean you know as right. christians we're we're siblings in christ we're brothers and sisters that's the most popular way we're addressed throughout you know more than the church more than the body of christ over and over again brothers and sisters what did it mean in the ancient context there? Um, I wrote a whole book about that and how, you know, our, our aim in our friendship is to promote holiness in one another. So what does that look like? How do we, how do we view one another holistically? You know, all these things. Sure. Um, so yeah, there's different le- layers to it. And, and with this book, I really found, oh, it, you know, there's a lot of opposition to, <laughs> to the last book. So why would I write another one? Um, I think it's because in writing about these things and in all the backlash that I've I've encountered um, the devaluing was shocking to me in Christ mm-hmm. church. And then more and more women are reaching out to me, sharing their stories of a downright abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and how could I not write 
then, you know, knowing in my speaking engagements, going to all these different churches over and over again, it's the same stories um, of either abuse or, you know, women, this, you know, a very common thread uh, is women who have like the desire to be invested in more theologically. They want to learn more. They, you know, maybe their pastor, their leadership of the church has noticed that they have this theological vigor or these leadership skills. So they appoint them as like leaders in women's ministry. And mm -hmm. then they're kind of um, side-armed. They're distanced from the, the ministry of the rest of the church. They're put where it's quote unquote safe mm -hmm. for them. And they're not invested in either. So the resources being marketed to women, like I said, are, there's some horrible error in some of it. Like um, we've uncovered years ago, heresy, you know, on the Trinity <laughs> um, to teach about men and women. It, it no. was so strange. So um, why is this happening? And so the more I dug into the resources for, for men and women in the church, particularly through the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, and their big book that came out about 30 years ago, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I saw that it's their very theology, their anthropology of man and woman is, is, is um, Aristotelian, really. Uh, women are inferior. Um, they don't go as far as to say that we are, you know, uh, deep, you know, defected men, right. <laughs> but they, they have their own language. They use the language of roles, you know, as mm -hmm. some sort of um, ontological way that we exist um, to perform these roles. And that's part of our being, part of who we are. And, and really these roles are kind of our cultural gender tropes of the yeah. day. I don't know. I, I knew that there would be backlash. Um, and, you know, I think, well, I, I have thick skin. And I also think, well, I have the support of my husband, um, where so many don't. I also had to ask myself, do I care about platform and things mm -hmm. like that? Because that gets taken right away. Yeah. Um, but it has been really revealing uh, on levels that I didn't even realize. Right. Uh, the level of cutting off the level of, um, I mean, I've been called evil, ungodly, Marxist-like, stupid, incredibly dumb, feminist outrage machine, uh, Jezebel, ravenous wolf, garbage, malicious, you know, and these are by uh, elders in my own denomination. Right. Because I'm talking about discipleship. In a sense, do you feel any sense of validation that it proves your thesis in a lot of ways? Or is it <laughs> in ways I never would have imagined like how easily <laughs> and, and on different levels, like they're the, the, the vitriol and the name calling people, you know, who organize and plot against me. Um, but then there's the more sophisticated, you know, in the, um, the bigger platforms that, you know, maybe I used to participate in myself. Um, there's more sophisticated cruelty as well. Yeah. And I think the sophisticated cruelty, even more so, it speaks louder to me mm. and reveals even more what I use as a metaphor in my book as the yellow wallpaper. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, which is like something that, you know, we can't really see um, at first look maybe, um, but all the blind spots in the church about what our views are about men and women. Sure. Why, why do you think there is such, because it's something I've been honestly racking my brain about is in, in, I say this as someone who, you know, growing up, even, even when I left the independent Baptist movement and jumped into 
you know, the, the big pot of crazy that is, you know, <laughs> the, the apologia kind of world, you know, mm. and the, you know, the more reformed side of things, even on the, the, it's strange saying less crazy considering the last few years, but even the John <laughs> MacArthur side who, who seemingly up to that point was at least time I was listening to him was not doing, saying some of the stuff he's saying now, maybe, or maybe I just to go pick home. up on it. <laughs> right. And, and, and so I, I look at, I look at all this as someone who would have affirmed complementarian theology to its fullest and say, you know, women are to be, you know, the housekeeper and the man is to go provide and be the protector and be this, you know, this masculine hit these masculine marks based on kind of our cultural view of, of men and women. And so I would have been enraged by your book four or five years ago. You know, I would have been reading the blogs without reading your book going like, that's crazy. Yeah. I can't believe someone's doing this. But now I sit on it, you know, where I'm still kind of reading for myself, but I'm, I'm also looking and going like, why is this drawing so much vitriol? Like, why does this yeah. hit such a, a nerve point? And I understand, you know, I understand debating like, you know, theology about like, about like maybe leadership in the church, like with the role of a pastor and, and right. you know, first Timothy two, eight through 15 and like working through that. And, and, you know, but even that, I just it's not a gospel issue. So like, but, right. but churches will literally excommunicate people, mm-hmm. you know, at, sometimes verbally, but sometimes just you push them to the side and say like, okay, you can't even write for us or you can't do this because you're questioning yeah. this position. Why, why do you think there's so much animosity toward people who would even, you know, start to pick at that yellow wallpaper a little bit? Yeah. It wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, leaders in the complementarian movement would say, you know, even distinguishing between, you know, first order doctrinal issues like the doctrine of God, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the authority of scripture, you know, the gospel of justification by faith alone, like those are first order doctrines that everyone has to affirm if they say they're Christians, right? And that makes us brothers and sisters. Um, and then there's these like second order doctrines that, uh, and, and it used to be, you know, ordination of women would, would fit in that category, baptism, you know, those kind of church government. Those are the kind of things that um, they're important differences. It's so important that it would probably separate us where we worship on oh. Sunday morning. But we still look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. It, we're in unity on the, the first order issues. And then there's the third order, third order issues, you know, uh, maybe your view on the end times. Um, where it, it's not even going to separate where you worship necessarily, but um, except for if you're like extremely dispensational, yeah. but um, you know, so we can have differences within even our own church on, on those kind of issues. And I think that's very helpful. And, and I operated under that premises, but really the invisible fence, and now it's becoming a, a more visible loud fence is that um, if you are an egalitarian, then you are um, a, feminist, <laughs> evangelical feminist. And those are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, even something like the gospel coalition um, where they, you know, want to center on, you know, Hey, we have doctrinal issues, but we're all united on the gospel here. Um, they're also all united on complementarianism and yeah. a pretty strong view of complementarianism. So um, that kind of sends a message that, okay, that's a first order issue then right. for them. And for me, I found that while I do still uphold um, male, you know, male ordination um, and, and 
you know, our views on what it is to be ordained has changed, you know, since medieval times. But um, I, I look at it more as representational because I really like take a theological approach to scripture. And I, I believe that the pastor represents the, the bridegroom's uh, best man, you know, as John the Baptist kind of says with, with Jesus. Um, he's the best man. He's not the groom. <laughs> But, you know, he's sharing the gifts from the groom until he returns. So I think it's more representational. And I, and I, my next book talk a lot about how I think that um, our own sexuality is typological and representational of Christ's love for his bride. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I don't hold that to be something that makes um, egalitarians my enemy <laughs> by yeah. any means. And, um, and, you know, I even think that there's there's, they have some plausible interpretations of First Timothy too. So I don't hang mm-hmm. my theology of, of men and women in the church on First Timothy too. Um, so I've been sharpened and have learned a lot. And, and, and I believe I've read a lot more rich um, writing on men and women in the church by egalitarians. Yeah. Um, so I quote from them in the book. And I also quote from Roman Catholics who I've read a lot more rich writing on men and women. Right. Apparently it's okay to quote Roman Catholics who actually disagree with us on some of the first order things, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's not okay for me to be quoting egalitarians or learning from them. No one's concerned that I'm becoming Roman Catholic, but there's a, a fear, you know, fear language. I'm dangerous mm. um, because I quote egalitarians. Yeah, that, that's uh, honestly, uh, that, that was something that actually someone I was talking to and, and I, I told them I was getting ready to interview you and they were like, well, you know, they were like, well, she quotes like these, you know, feminist authors, you know, without, you know, without critiquing the thing. And, and you raise a good point. And this is something that I've, you know, now that I'm, I'm not writing, but I'm putting out content, you know, constantly. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a year and a half into this and like, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put out episodes and I'll have a guest who disagrees maybe even on a big issue but to yeah. me but to me like let's talk about the conversation we're having at hand like if I'm having someone on to talk about you know uh, the way women are treated in the church you know what I mean like I'm not going to necessarily go in and be like but by the way just a disclaimer here's all the things I disagree with like sometimes right. you just go and pull the quote and and you're right re- reformed um, speaking of reformed crowd specifically, like how often we quote St. Augustine or we quote these people mm-hmm. who would, I mean, they probably wouldn't be allowed to speak in <laughs> some of our conferences, but we'll pull a quote that sounds amazing, you know, and, and use that, use that statement. So um, that is interesting. And I, I want to hit this since we kind of already have brushed up against first Timothy too, because I think this is a kind of a good foundation to kind of set up where your book is really attacking is you know, I was surprised when I finished the book that I I don't think you dove into First Timothy two at all, and, and so I like for me, I was like, man, I really wish that that's where it would have gone. Is like hit that hit that statement, and I'm realizing now, kind of why you didn't. Uh, but I, but I'm kind of curious, like when someone sees a book saying, you know, talking about recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, they see that you're going to be kind of addressing complementarianism what kind of informed the decision to stay away from first Timothy two and then focus on, you know, other areas. Cause I think for a lot yeah. of, a lot of the negative feedback I've seen hits mm-hmm. that, you know, like, Oh, you skipped right. the verse that would prove your entire book wrong. That's kind of how people phrase it. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of curious, like what was your kind of thought process and, you know, what was kind of the thinking when you were, when you're writing it? Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. Um, it's interesting because 
this is where I think all of the um, talking past one another is, is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, my book is about discipleship. So it's about um, what can a disciple do? How do we disciple? <laughs> where right. is, what, what's the context for that? How do we read scripture together? What is our, our great honor and responsibility towards one another in the church? Um, which is my writing has always focused on that. So not only did I not address First Timothy 2, which I still read and interpret that to be talking about corporate worship and office bearing. So mm-hmm. that's not what I was writing about. Um, and I find that to be a distraction then because I want to focus on discipleship. But not only do I not go to that verse, I also am not spending you know, time focusing on marriage and mm-hmm. you know, uh, complementarianism in marriage or whatever that means, you know? Um, I'm, I'm addressing men and women as disciples, brothers and sisters. So um, the hard part is there doesn't seem to be, and this is part of my point, really, we cannot distinguish between women as disciples and women as like a pastor. <laughs> you know, if we invest in her as a disciple, if we let her teach in general office as lay teacher, um, um, any of these things, like it, all of a sudden, you know, we can't get rid of this word authority, you know, and, um, and so even in the first Timothy two verse, there's so, that's such a complicated verse. Um, there's so many disagreements on interpretation um, within complementarianism, even and in egalitarianism, the, the very word translated authority there is it's the only time it's used that Greek word is used in the whole New Testament. And it, it comes with a lot of um, kind of violent connotations to it, like usurping, taking away, overpowering, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just about, oh, I'm authorized to teach other people. Right. And, and we see all throughout scripture that, um, you know, men and women are both addressed as in general office as lay people to be teachers. Um, so this is where I'm, I'm speaking, like, and if these are true, then first Timothy two cannot be mean that women can't teach at all, you know, even sure. to men. So like, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teach and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Hebrews 5.12, although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Romans 12, 6 through 8, 1 Corinthians 12.31, 1 Corinthians 14.1, 1 Corinthians 14.26, is all telling us that we need to be teachers hmm. and they're not gendered verses. This is, you know, written to the congregation. So um, unless we're to believe that he only meant the men, <laughs> yeah. um, how are women to obey God? How are we to obey the authority of scripture in all of these verses? If when I'm talking about that in my book, the very first accusation is she didn't talk about first Timothy to women right. can't teach, you know, shut it down. And, um, and so I'm trying to read the whole, narrative of scripture to read canonically um to not just focus on on one scripture which is an important scripture you know and i think that we need to talk about that but my book wasn't about who can be ordained you know who can who can preach from the pulpit on sunday morning sure. my book was about the whole body of christ and how we are invested in and serve as disciples hmm. yeah you, you talk a lot about your in, in your book you talk about gendered discipleship you know like the way that we'll mm-hmm. we'll teach men differently uh, a lot of you know you mentioned you know that you know there, there's a more masculine bent with with a lot of preaching and the messaging and and pastors especially 
this has been a ser- seminary taught by other men are going to be focused mm-hmm. like and taught how to emphasize those, those kind of issues. Um, so I, I, I mentioned this on my interview with, with Beth Barr, you know, I, I understand how men push this kind of culture. I understand, mm-hmm. you know, one, I understand how the guys who do have a truly negative agenda push it. And I understand who the guys who are well-meaning, who are taught by those guys can push it unintentionally. Mm-hmm. They can just do it by just not thinking about it. Right. I, what I get shocked by is you mentioned the lack of, of real solid materials for women, like in the history of the church, like there's, there's, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a, a lot of it. I mean, it gets made fun of all the time, but, but like yeah. some of the best selling Christian books for women written by women push a lot of these mm-hmm. same narratives about how to be a good housewife, how to do this, how to, how yeah. to fit your role. So how do we get to a point where women are kind of pushing this narrative as much, mm-hmm. if not more so than, than the men are? Great question. I've written a whole book about that called No Little Women <laughs> and, and uh, you know, kind of surveying the, the bestsellers list for women and, and seeing uh, how we're not expected really to have a lot of discernment in our reading mm-hmm. or taste for, you know, the rich stuff, the, the meat that we're reading about in scripture that we're supposed to have. And I think that there's multiple layers. One layer is just that um, our growth has, has been stunted as a gender because we haven't been invested in um, because of the resources. Um, we haven't had women authors even until, you know, at a popular no. level until like the 90s, the 1990s. So these women who, and you know, some of them have pioneered for other women like me to be able to, to be an mm-hmm. author. So um, I don't want to, you know, shame them by any means. Um, but these women who had a theological vigor, who wanted to encourage women to be in their Bible, studying scripture, um, they weren't invested in well, you know, and they start writing books and then they're not put through any kind of uh, critique. They're just put out there and, and, and women read more books than men. The studies show that we read a lot more books than men, mm. even nonfiction Christian books. So um, we became a desirable market. So publishers want these women authors, you know, and there was no process to filter them. There was no education for the women reading to filter. We just put, mm-hmm. put in our own little quote unquote women's ministries. No. And, um, and I think a lot of bad doctrine has seeped in that way, but not only by the women, but by the men who have been teaching us and overseeing some of um, these, these other women writers, um, women start realizing that, well, first of all, they accept their teachings because they trust them as trusted Christian teachers. And so when they hear that the son is uh, in his very being subordinate to the father, who are they to question these men, mm. you know? Um, but that's a heresy. And then they go from that teaching these men to say that, just like how the son in his very being is subordinate to the father's authority, um, women in our very being are subordinate to the authority of men. Hmm. And so this starts getting put in our resources and, and the women are taught that and then the women are teaching it to the other women and it's getting put in children's books. It's put in the Bible translations, you know, it's, it's wild. So, um, now we have more women come rising up in academia. Um, very happy about that. Um, doing a lot of work. And, and interestingly, egalitarians were doing a lot of work critiquing this eternal subordination of the sun business mm-hmm. and complementarianism's take on it, but they were d- discounted, dismissed because 
they're liberals, you know, which is which is a first order doctrine first issue. order doctrine. Yeah, which which exactly. this is this is what kind of hit me reading your book because again. I read your book first, like yours was the, yours was the one I read first out of the two. So really, you know, I'm curious to reread it now. <laughs> and, and cause, cause when I did, when I, when I picked it up, I, I was, I was very trepidatious about it. I was very like, mm-hmm. like, okay, what's the angle on this, you know? And, and mm-hmm. not even, and it's strange because like, not even something where like, I, I was so loosely complimentary, but like, it was something about just the verbiage and like, well, if this isn't like, like if you're trying to destroy biblical manhood and womanhood, if that's the goal, you know, like it was just mm-hmm. weird. Like all that programming kind of jumped to the front. It is but, programming, isn't it? Yeah. That word biblical makes you think that if you disagree or critique it, then yeah. you aren't biblical. Yeah. You're like, if this is biblical and you're, yeah. And you're going at it, then you're attacking like doctrine like this is doctrine and what hit me with your book was was you know you 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 go into it with this idea and and based on reviews and things you you expect it to be okay you've bought into this you know feminist ideology you know that's that's what everyone was kind of speaking oh it's this cultural feminist thing trying to jump onto this movement and then you know overlay that on scripture and then what i was fascinated by was i'm reading through it and going like Oh, like Amy Bird is a theologian talking through scripture and her, the outflowing of that is her position on this subject. Like, cause mm-hmm. I, I saw it, you know, when, when you started talking about the Trinitarian error, which I was like, I didn't even expect to be going in that direction, but I'm mm-hmm. going like, man, yeah, here's a second or third level issue overpowering this first. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a huge, huge, huge heretical issue like that's actually dangerous (laughs) right exactly and so that's what that's what kind of shocked me then in hindsight looking at some of the reviews again is like how do they miss that like how did how did not more people jump to that and say like at least even if they disagree with some of the takeaways like okay that's something that needs to be fixed like that's something that's been taught consistently for generation after generation it's it it was kind of mind-blowing to me i know that's not a question but that was kind of my no like piggybacking off of that i mean it seems like those who were promoting you know this unorthodoxy were given a lot more grace (laughs) than me and for pointing it out and and then in my book you know i really wanted and and this is where you know it it is kind of foolish for a writer to do but i really um you know when people come into a book about men and women um, in the church, you've got the one half that's gonna be expected to be like gratified, you know, like mm-hmm. they're gonna be validated when they read it. Then you've got the other half that is gonna be angry over this book, you know? And I really wanted to kind of challenge both of those sides mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to show, and, and by using this title, um, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, I wanted to show that, um, compliment you whatever your whatever your views are on male ordination and female ordination um complementarianism is a movement it's a movement that started about 30 years ago and um if we attach ourselves to movements there's always going to be things we need to critique within a movement right and we can't just use the word biblical um and 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 not be critiqued (laughs) you know so they put biblical in front of womanhood and that that mean, well, of course I want to be biblical, yeah. you know, and I want to be true to God's design for me as a woman. But um, 
not only did I uncover a lot of unbiblical teaching, but I think their whole aim, and, and they're very direct about this, the aim for discipleship is biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. And Christ, is, it's kind of given the, the passenger seat there. Mm, yeah. um, you know, the aim for both men and women disciples is Christ likeness. And our virtues are not different. And, and they give feminine virtues and masculine virtues. But we see, uh, you know, what Jesus preaches on the Sermon on the Mount and his, you know, blessed series, those who mourn and, um, or in the fruits of the spirit that we're given, they're not gendered, they're for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, will a, a masculine and feminine flavor come out of that? Of course it will, but we can't really prescribe what that looks like. That's yeah. why the Bible doesn't do that. Right. Well, <laughs> so, it kind of slips. Um, it it kind of slips into what you see at events. You know, you see the guys go to the Soldiers for Christ conference, where yes. it's very it's masculine, meaning like it has nothing to do with even leading. Like masculine is like you're a soldier, you're this, you're a hunter, you're you're yeah. this strong. And then you go to and we like learn the, how to wash our towels you know, better. Yeah, spiritually <laughs> sweet, and you'll make a cupcake and hear a Bible. Yes. Like you see it split up that way. And you're right. The, the Bible does not gender those things. Uh, on the contrary, it, it's, it, <laughs> there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. I mean, it's pretty yeah. clearly laid out. It's, it's, it's pretty mm-hmm. shocking when you read through it. Yeah. So. so I wanted both audiences. I wanted to address both audiences. Um, and I'd love to see, you know, we're so polarized by it. Mm-hmm. And it, like you're saying, it's a secondary doctrine. I don't think we're going to grow on either side if we don't sharpen one another and talk to one another and have, have healthy conversations about this. Right. Well, that's, that's kind of where, and I actually just did an episode about this, but it's kind of where I end up after reading both of those books is on this issue. It's, it's in a way it's, it's, I think it's more important than ever to talk about, but then also on the other end of it, like it's become less important to me, like, convincing someone to come to where I'm at on it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, it's uh-huh. kind of a strange, cause like, I definitely, there's very dangerous things on the the side of, you know, obviously I deal with uh, abuse victims who this idea right. gets used a lot of times we talked, I mean, I'm talked about in a recent episode, like John Piper's even view on like, okay, well endure being smacked for a night, then go yeah. to this, you know, like it's there's that kind atrocious. of stuff that's just harmful and terrible, mm-hmm. you know, there's stuff on the other side that's, that's super concerning to me as well. But but also I'm sitting here going like, there's so many amazing writers on this side that are sharing really helpful, thoughtful things. And I just, it's, it's kind of reaffirmed to me, like how much of a non-issue this is, you know what I mean? Like it's, it becomes well, an issue when you hold it too extremely, you know? Right. And strangely, like within Christian academia, um, you know, I've read a lot, I read a lot and um Male academics can quote egalitarians all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, co- complementarian academics can quote them as conversation partners. You know, they might not even be talking about gender, but they're respectable enough to, to, qu- to quote, you know, to use their material. And these men, no one is afraid of them now that they're quoting them. It's interesting what ha- the difference when a woman quotes mm-hmm. an egalitarian. <laughs> I mean, it's there's just so many interesting things that are revealed in, in all of that um, when it comes to conversing with, you know, across on the other side. And, and then, you know, even like you said, you read my book and you read Beth Allison Bloor's book. Um, you know, Beth is 
you know, further on the egalitarian, you know, she's mm-hmm. a full egalitarian. And I've, I've interest, I've learned this interestingly, um, in talking to egalitarians, they treat me with dignity and respect. Mm-hmm. They're upfront where they disagree with me on issues. Um, but I'm welcome in conversation with them. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, they even humble themselves and, and, you know, want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> and, and so it's interesting how differently I'm treated, even when, with my differences on that side. Yeah, it's, it's just a very, I mean, I talked about, like I said, I talked about a recent episode, but it's that idea of like, can you sit and learn anything from hearing another perspective? And, and again, I think even with this, I had Elise Fitzpatrick on the show, who's, you know, she, she talked about being very loosely complementarian, you know, but like Mm -hmm. theologically complementarian, but she said, even her, she said, if you're in a church, that's not teaching about the dignity and value of women and teaching them to pursue, you know, I forget how she worded in a very Elise Fitzpatrick beautiful way (laughs) but she said if if you're not in a church like that go to an egalitarian church that teaches that you know like that's that's how important it is to get those core things right and yeah it's just it's been a really fascinating kind of road and and i was curious about that before we kind of shift the conversation a little bit i was curious if you had gotten any lash because because your book does I, i could see where it could upset people on either side who do mm-hmm. hold to an extreme position more or the other have you gotten any like lashing out from the side that would be like the full egalitarian side saying like oh you weren't strong enough on something or you should have pushed this mm-hmm. a little bit further Do, have you gotten that or has it been largely um, the other I've side gotten challenged by some okay. in, in a friendly way um so yeah and, and interestingly egalitarians who have defended me against some of my critics and the reason why they're defending me would be the the way that the critics are you know changing it into name calling or, um, you know, you've got like uh, Denny Burke, who's the president of CBMW, completely misrepresenting my work and setting it up as a straw man and poisoning the well in his review. Um, so those who have, um, you know, defended me who are egalitarians, they'll make comments like, you know, we assure you, Amy Bird is not an egalitarian. Like there's things that right. we disagree with, you know, with her writing. And so, but they, that makes them not be able to believe it even more so. It, it's just, the treatment that you get from quote unquote, your own camp. Um, and then, you know, I do get a lot of them saying, why are you, why do you remain? You're participating in your own abuse right? by remaining. And, you know, that's a question yeah. I ask myself over and over and, and reevaluate continually. Sure. This kind of ties in the next part. So I want to definitely talk about how this plays a role in, in abuse that we've seen, you know, happen time and time again. It seems mm-hmm. like it's just hit a fever pitch lately. Maybe it's just the amount of exposure it's getting now. But I, I often ask myself when I see people holding strongly and teaching this, there's the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. You know, I, I guess my question is to what end? Like, like what is the what is the goal uh, of this? And I see it very clearly when I see an abusive leader like, okay, they're teaching this for this reason. Like they're teaching it because it makes it very easy to do what they do. But mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that's the motivation of, and I, I mean, I, at least I would hope not. I don't think that's the motivation of every single complementarian or every single person, even a Denny Burke or even a John Piper. I think, I think, I don't think that's necessarily the goal is like for some sordid abuse down the road. Um, you know, wh- wh- what do you think the goal is? Like, why do you think this started 30 years ago? What, what do you think was the intent? Do you think they just well, clearly saw this? What they, they, 
you know, I don't want to judge their hearts or their motives. I will, they did say in the, in their book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And when they started with the stand for statement and the whole council of biblical manhood and womanhood that, um, you know, the sexual revolution was raging on in the world, mm. in the world. And, um, then even in the church, they see this, uh, evangelical feminism is what they called it, egalitarianism. Um, and so they wanted to be able to respond to that. They wanted to be able to equip the church um, with resources on God's design for man and woman. So, you know, I think that that, there, you know, there could be very godly motivation behind this. Um, so I, I think that the different teachers in there um, maybe uh, put their claws in in different ways into how this was going to be taught and what was going to be tolerated. Mm. But um, there does seem to be this underlying obsession with male authority and yeah. female subordination. And I think that's one reason why I am uh, so challenged the way that I am. And, and when you get down to their bottom line questions and arguments, it, that's what it all boils down to. Mm. Um, and it's this kind of hierarchical rule. Um, and it really is not complementary. <laughs> yeah. So right. it's a contradiction really to what they call themselves. And, and so I would say, yeah, there's different levels of that. You know, I just recently heard from someone who asked me to interview on a podcast and she had heard me years ago. I was asked to speak at a presbytery um, for the PCA. And so this is a governing body of, there are about 80 elders and pastors from different uh, churches within this geographical area that made area that made up this specific presbytery. And they meet like, I don't know, four times a year or something like that. And uh, I was actually asked after writing No Little Women to come speak on the topic of equipping women in their church, wow. which I thought, well, this is wonderful. And this is kind of in the Virginia, Maryland, you know, Pennsylvania area. Um, so I did that. And, and right before I got up to talk, a small group of women came in because it was like all men, you know, but women are allowed to come. <laughs> they just don't usually, because uh, they're not really uh, included as part of it. But this group, small group of maybe four or five women uh, sat at a round table who heard I was speaking and they wanted to hear what I had to say. And um, so this woman now years later has gotten in contact with me and she now lives in LA. And she brings up, you know, I'm, I've met you at this presbytery when you spoke. And it's funny because we get to corresponding about that day. And she said, yeah, it was such a shocker for me because she was at a church in DC. So urban area, you know, you think that it'd be a lot better for women there. And she's like the lip service to how women should be treated and invested in was there, hmm. but the actions spoke differently than their, their stated purposes. Um, and their governing principles were not the same. Right. So, you know, I think that there's so many levels to this. And I hear from women in all, all different kinds of churches. Um, but the very, you know, when you get into abuse, the very thing, the very process given, and, you know, I speak in a Presbyterian realm, but I think this is true in, like, in the Baptists as well. The very process to be able to address abuse um, is harmful to women mm. who are abused. So we really need, as a church as a whole, to step back and look at our, our ecclesial bodies, our governing processes, the way that we discipline, and, and see how it actually can perpetuate abuse. 
Do, do you think it's something, this has been a topic of conversation the last few days, um, just with, with all the news stories. I mean, you look at the, the Atlanta um, shooting that just happened. And so there's been a yeah. lot of people who've said, you know, you know, he had, he personally drew a correlation between, you know, the, like him trying to wipe out temptation. And so I think I've seen some people sloppily try to draw connections to, you know, maybe some theological positions. I, I think it's, I think it's hard to say that, you know, I always, I'm always hesitant to say, you know, if there's a group of millions of people and one person does something, it's hard to broad brush the entire movement, but I think it also raises some good points. I think Rachel Den Hollander made some good, you know, points about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you do have to look at that. Like there is this idea of when you, when you place man position where women are nothing but a threat, um, you know, some people are going to take that to a logical conclusion. You have to do, you do have to kind of trace that slippery slope argument. Um, but even stepping further back, like that's an extreme, you know, example, but, but you do like, there is a lot of sexual abuse happening in largely complementary movements, like the Sun Baptist convention, uh, independent Baptist world that I'm, that I'm working with. And, uh, I, I guess my question would be, do you think that this type of theology, this misunderstanding of the roles of men and women, do you think that creates abusers or do you think it creates a magnet for abusers? Like, like, do you think it's something where people see that system and slip into it because it's, it's easy? Or do you think it's something where if you're funneled with this kind of teaching, it's going to put you in a mindset of being uh, abusive in one way or another? I think both are true. And, um, you know, through my own experience, I have, you know, not been sexually abused in the church, but um, have suffered from, from some pretty gross spiritual abuse um, and have found that there's just not any education um, in seminary or in training, you know, afterwards on the topic of abuse. And so when you have this kind of hyper complementarian teaching, um, I think that um, well-intended uh, good men per se, um, have a lot of blind spots and a lot of misconceptions about the way they view women that they don't even realize. And so, you know, when I came forward for help, I found that I was harmed, you know, by even quote unquote good men, um, even more than before I came for it. Mm. And uh, literally we had to hire, um, you know, an expert uh, on spiritual abuse to help because, um, there's so many blind spots because of this teaching. The woman's voice is just completely ignored. And, you know, you get these personal expressions of care and then collectively governing bodies uh, of men, <laughs> a lot of the time white men <laughs> behind closed doors, all who see from the position of power, no. they collectively make decisions, governing decisions that clobber the victims. Mm. And there's this, um, what's called empathy. <laughs> it's the sympathy for the men in power over and over again at the cost of the vulnerable. And um, it's just the opposite of what shepherds are called to do. No. There's to lay down their power. They're to use their power to, um, to raise up the church, you know, to equip and um, empower others. No. Yeah. It's, there's that tribalism, you know, like almost within the church, yeah. like, like protecting the person that looks like us and, and things like right. us. And, and that was a really heartbreaking thing. I, I forget what denomination, I think maybe it was church of Christ. Um, but I, I interviewed a, an author, uh, Sandy Philip Kirkham, who wrote about her story 
And she, I asked her on my interview, I said, why do you think that you as a teenage victim were, you know, kind of shunned and kicked out of the church and the youth pastor was given a goodbye party and went off to another bigger ministry. And she said, I felt like they took me and, and weighed out my value. And they took out him Mm. and weighed out his value and contribution to the ministry. And they made the choice of getting rid of the person who brought less value. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's where I think this, this teaching goes to its extreme. And I see this play out and this isn't fringe. This happens constantly is that someone will be abused. Someone will be hurt. You know, someone will be taken advantage of. And there is that weighing of value. And immediately, like, this is just, I'm comfortable saying this after, you know, a hundred plus interviews with people is I see it time and again, is that just the count of them being a male in the church gives them a huge leg up within that ecosystem. And, and to me, like whether, again, we can talk about ordination, but there's so much work that has to be done on the ground floor to say like, mm-hmm. what allows that to happen? Like, how do we sit there yes. and, and how does a, a high happen? You know, how mm-hmm. does a Ravi Zacharias happen? How does it mm-hmm. like the long, long, long list of these names? How does yeah. that happen? Even on, on, even on a psychological level, it already begins because, um, you know, uh, when I needed to address this in the church, um, you know, talking to my husband around, he's like, you need to schedule a meeting. And um, hmm. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be the troublemaker. You know, I don't want to, do I really want to do this? Do I want to, and um, husband goes to work and I don't know, a couple of days go by. He's like, hey, did you schedule that meeting? And I'm like, not yet. You know, <laughs> he goes, yeah. you didn't schedule the meeting because you're a woman. If it was a man treated like that, that badly by spiritual leaders, you know, in his own church, he would have made the meeting, yeah. you know, and I just thought, oh, my gosh, you're right, you know, as a woman. And then not only that, you know, let's say a woman is abused by her husband or she's abused by, uh, you know, spiritually or sexually abused by a leader in the church. Um, if it's a complementarian church with ma- all male leadership and she's already been abused by male power, um, how intimidating is it? <laughs> No. To go into that room, you know, how vulnerable is she? To and, more men and, and more share. spiritual power. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, we need to, we need to get ahead of this stuff. We need to have women advocate train teams that, you know, churches need to say, we care about our sisters and we know how hard that must be. You know, if you're holding to this doctrine, then you need to minister to these women too and, and make a way for them to have advocates to help represent them through the the process. Like you don't even know what to do in the process. You don't know what rights you have as a member of that church. You know, there's just so many things right. um, and, and the accountability for the leaders. You've written obviously extensively on this. You've, like you said, it's been stepping stones kind of building on the, on this idea. If someone were to pick up recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, and they, they could only walk away with one thing. If they could walk away and say, because of this book, it, it changed my view on this, or it, it made me implement this in my church. Like, what do you want someone who picks up that book to walk away with? You know, it's, uh, it's, the book is a direct critique, but more than that, I hope that it is an, an invitation to something so much more beautiful. And so the main thing that I hope that readers of my book walk away with is the great love that Christ has for his bride and how he even uses woman to show this beauty of what man and woman are headed to and, you know, in, in eternity as Christ's collective bride. Like she's an eschatological marker. She 
when Adam looks at Eve, um, right, the, the first woman created, who's created second, she's representing the second order, not subordination. And that when he sees her, who he had to sacrifice for, who's made from his side, he, there is that gospel picture of the church flowing from Christ, our groom's side. It's all there. So um, I hope that it opens your eschatological imaginations. I hope that it, it has you grow in, in the wonder and all of the great love of God. And then at a practical level, I hope that my book helps people be better readers of scripture and asking better questions and really um, digging into like what our great honor and responsibility is to be a disciple of Christ. Awesome. Yeah. I think that that kind of grounding helps you from that reactionary theology that you see happen 30 years ago, where you see something happen that scares you and then you have to create a framework. If you can start with a solid framework, it becomes a lot easier to to stay consistent. So, but um, thank you so much. I I wish I had a physical copy of your book. I I have the digital copy, so I wish I could hold it up. But, (laughs) but if you're listening to this, grab a copy of recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood. It's uh, you know, you're going to forget to do it later. So just do it right now. It's well worth it. And uh, thank you so much, Amy, for joining me. It was a really good conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.